0: The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, o Lord. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to your ancestors, you shall not kill, and whoever kills will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, Will be answerable to the Sanhedrin. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to fiery Gehenna. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there recall that your brother has anything against you, leave your gift there at the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle with your opponent quickly while on the way to court with him. Otherwise, your opponent will hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the guard, and you will be thrown in prison. Amen, I say to you, you will not be released until you have paid the last penny. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. This strongly worded teaching on the part of our Lord can provoke curious reactions within the believer's heart when we engage it slowly and we let the words penetrate us. And at times there can be that odd puzzlement we have that expresses itself In words to the effect of i thought jesus was nice (laughs) no he's not jesus is many things but he is not safe jesus is many things but he's not nice in the domesticated way that we use that word we use language like that about the gospels at times to keep us safe because when we focus on the niceness of Jesus, we don't have to pay attention to the way Jesus is demanding, to the way Jesus expects something from us, and as a real expectation, not a list of options that we may or may not choose to follow. And so it is here that the Lord, in the Sermon on the Mount, makes it very clear that he has expectations for his people. And note that these are expectations, meaning he expects something from us, and he will not be happy if he doesn't see it. And so he leads with, unless your righteousness surpasses, And he says, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious authorities of the day. Unless you are more righteous than they are, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What a strong statement that is. And something that should give us pause. Heaven is not guaranteed. And it is not an inalienable right that we have. It is a gift, it is a gift. And note how insistent the Lord is then on living in a way that measures up to the gift, or at least tries to, that recognizes that heaven is not to be taken lightly nor for granted. And so he says, don't fool yourselves and The example he chooses is amazing because, again, if one just pays attention to the common things we believers say, it is not all that unusual to hear us talk about ourselves in these ways. Well, you know, I've never killed anybody. I'm all right. I've never robbed a bank. And notice what Jesus says here. I'm happy for you that you've never killed anybody but I want more from you than that. And it's that I want more from you than that that gives us trouble. And so note, he's going to say it's not enough that you haven't committed a capital crime. It's not enough that you've avoided doing the big and outrageous things. Basic human decency requires that. There's nothing special about you about me, that we haven't done these things. And so the Lord says, I expect my followers to be different because I give the grace that allows them to be different. And so here, great, you've never killed anybody. Oh, but that resentment that's been simmering in your heart for years? Let's talk about that that grudge, that inability to forgive, that refusal to communicate and relate to someone. What's going on with that? Why is that there? And why are you not working on it? Note, you may not have killed anybody, but how often have your language torn somebody down, diminished his reputation, wounded someone? I expect more. What a remarkable statement that is. The Lord is very clear from the beginning of his ministry. I have come so that your lives likewise can be different. And it is this difference about how one lives after he or she has committed to me that makes a difference in the world. And I expect to see it because I've come for that. What an important and challenging and yet affirming series of statements this is on the part of the Lord. Because he is also saying, you don't have to be a slave to your anger. You don't have to wallow in your resentment. You don't have to be just another angry person you can be better, and because you can be better, I expect better. And so note, on the one hand, the words are stinging and cutting, because if we're honest with ourselves, we regularly fall short of them. And yet they're also pointing out a high point to which we can rightly aspire with his aid. In other words, the Lord is insisting on the reality and the greatness of the difference he can make in our lives. That it is a real difference, that there is a real greatness of which the human heart is capable if that heart is willing to risk a certain confidence and trust in following him. The Lord is basically saying, If that's not there, then you just haven't bothered to move. And I expect that my life and my grace will produce a certain movement toward the good in your life. When the Lord speaks this way, he is also speaking of that one who has every right to be angry with every single one of us and yet whose mercy is greater than his anger whose patience is greater than his anger, whose kindness and willingness to forgive is greater than all the reasons we give him to turn his back on us. And so notice he's speaking this way. He's also speaking of the Lord who hasn't reduced me to a smoldering pile of cinders on the floor, because that is what I deserve. He is speaking as that one who has every right to reject me, and yet who is so patient with me. And he is saying that this is what must also begin to root itself in you. It is so easy to criticize. It is so easy to find fault. It is so easy to turn our backs. The greater thing is not to do those things. And he has come for the greater thing. We have a marvelous example of this in our series of first readings from the first book of Kings that we've been going through over this week. With the figure of the wicked king, the unfaithful king, Ahab, and the holy man, Elijah. And we see again that if anyone deserves to be struck down and put in his place, it's Ahab who is persecuting and even killing the prophets, who is promoting idolatry. And yet the Lord, even in chastising him, is giving him every possible chance to come to his senses and to repent. And in the midst of all of the dramatic events of these readings, there is also this invincible patience of the Lord, who even as he acts, tempers his action with an opportunity for change and for recognition on the part of the one against whom he moves. And so even here, we see the Lord moving on behalf of Ahab, even as he challenges him. Our reading today is wonderful. It's that moment now where the three-year drought, where no rain has fallen, is about to come to an end. And so the prophet Elijah is waiting for this moment when finally rain will come once again to the languishing land as Israel has taken a small halting step in the direction of returning to faithfulness. And so the prophet sits and waits and we have this, we have this marvelously odd description of Elijah waiting by sitting down with his head between his knees. Basically, resting his arms on his knees, putting his head there, and just looking at the ground. It's an odd way to look for rain. And he's simply waiting, looking down, and he sends his servant out to see when the storm is coming. And the servant goes and looks out over the horizon and sees nothing. And he comes back and reports. And this happens six times. He goes out and he looks out over the horizon toward the sea from the height of the mountain. And and over all that distance, there is no sign of approaching rain. Until finally, well into the day, The prophet sends him out a seventh time. And all he sees is something tiny on the horizon. A small cloud, a single cloud, the hint of something. He comes back and he speaks to the prophet who recognizes that out of this small sign, something dramatic and great is about to emerge. And the prophet turns to the king. He turns to Ahab, the king who has been his opponent through all of this and says, you best get out of here or you'll be trapped by the rain. How remarkable is this? Even in the chastisement, even in the punishment, there is this note of relief. There is this note of mercy. There is this moment of kindness. Were Elijah just another one of the petty, of the vengeful, of the wrathful, he would resist this word, and yet he extends it. And so the king mounts his chariot and flees to a nearby city, and we have this odd dynamic of Elijah getting up, being empowered by the Lord, and he outruns the chariot and uh the the foot race of elijah against the chariot of ahab uh, has a remarkable history in art in fact in the episcopal cathedral of saint john the divine in manhattan there is a stained glass window which depicts scenes from sports in harmony in tandem with scenes from the scripture and And so we have Elijah racing the chariot is depicted in that context in the window. This movement of how the Lord empowers his servants to arrive at the city, at the goal, at the destination, faster than any earthly power ever could. And ironically, when Ahab arrives at the city, he finds Elijah, that prophet who has been a thorn in his side, waiting for him. (laughs) But the beautiful thing here then is, all of a sudden, out of that small cloud on the distant horizon, comes the mighty storm. And the rain comes down on the land. This is why we have that beautiful psalm as our responsorial psalm. And again, we have to remind ourselves The responsorial psalm doesn't have that name because we repeat a response verse. In fact, the response verse is optional. The responsorial psalm is called that because it responds to the first reading. And so the drought is ending, and we have this psalm about the way the Lord so abundantly waters the earth, how he softens it, how he drenches its furrows and prepares it to be fruitful once again. And we have to pause here in wonderment. Because like so much that we find in sacred scripture, it points beyond itself to an even greater reality than the remarkable wonder of a drought coming to an end. It points to that moment as time becomes full. When Heaven opens up, and in full flood, grace arrives on the earth. In the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady, she who is flooded with grace, filled with grace. A small sign, like that distant cloud on the horizon, of the great flood of life and salvation and grace by which not the land of Israel, but the entire world could be made new and would be made new." How beautiful. Imagine Elijah looking down with his head between his knees as in one small scene encapsulating the hope of Israel of old, the world, the people of God, longing for that day when heaven would rain down the just one. And looking out over that horizon, wondering when we'll see him, when we'll catch a glimpse, and not seeing him, but knowing he is on the way. Note how wonderful this is. And so it is time and time again, one hears the word of the prophet and goes out and looks, but doesn't see quite yet. Until finally, finally, as the moment draws near, he looks out and in the far distance, in the far distance is that small sign of a cloud. And that is enough. It heralds the greatness that is to come. And so it is that in Our Lady's immaculate conception and her birth, we have, as the church would say, the the brightness in the sky that announces the coming dawn the evening star that announces the arrival of the sun, or that little cloud on the horizon that announces the flood of life-giving water that is drawing near. And we know that a short time after Our Lady's Immaculate Conception, a true flood came down from heaven as the Holy Spirit descended upon her and the Word is made flesh. And so it is then that from this moment all things will be made new. And what does the Lord say? That one who comes to me, streams of living water, will well up within him. Because the Lord has come not to physically water the world, but to spiritually water the world of the heart. And what we just celebrated on Sunday past the great feast of Pentecost, note again how for several days the church, in a sense, with Our Lady looks out at the horizon for that sign of the promised spirit to come until finally in full flood the spirit descends upon the church, not as water but as tongues of fire, making them new but then sending them out so that from that small building in Jerusalem the gospel might go and bring its living water to every land around the globe. Small wonder, then, that we have a psalm that celebrates the marvelous ways the Lord cares for the earth, waters it, drenches its furrows, prepares it to bear fruit. And so now we come back to our gospel reading and those words of Jesus who says, I who have so richly watered you, I, who have sent my grace in such a flood upon you, I do expect to see it make a difference. I do expect it. And this world, which is still so thirsty for goodness, I give it to drink by sending you. And so go and be that drink, bear that drink, for the world continues to thirst for salvation. And the Lord, who has been pleased in his patience and his goodness to save us, is likewise pleased to send his goodness into the world through his church. How wonderful indeed, O Lord, your care for your world. How richly you water it, how lovingly you tend it, and how fruitful you make it. Amen.